Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about wellness and what's most important to consider when you choose a beverage. Simple rule of thumb is to say, if you take your body weight in, in pounds and just cut it in half, whatever that number is, can be the amount of uh, ounces of uh, water that you should drink in a day. And two dental colleagues discuss clenching and grinding and other concerns related to the pandemic. We have seen a notable increase over the past you know, five, six months of additional patient care needs arriving there. This has included people coming in with abscesses, uh, swellings, infections. One thing becomes another, and unfortunately, unless they've been able to get care at their private office, sometimes that requires a trip to the emergency room for additional care needs. All that and a visit from The Healing News after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear how to jazz up water to make it more appealing. Then we'll learn about clenching and grinding and other dental concerns related to the pandemic. But first, Dr. Koshal Nanavati is here to help us choose the healthiest beverages. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You probably, several times a day, without really thinking about it, reach for a drink. My guest today is going to talk about what's most important to consider in choosing a beverage, and we'll cover a wide range of drinks. Dr. Koshal Nanavati is the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy, and he's also a frequent guest on HealthLink on Air. Thank you for making time again, Dr. Nanavati. Thank you for having me, Amber. I appreciate it. Well, let's start with what I assume that you're going to tell us is the most important, water. How much water do we need each day, and, and what do our bodies do with water? So the classic, uh, you know, thing is that, you know, eight ounces of, you know, eight, eight ounce glasses of water a day is what was historically kind of recommended. And then the Institute of Medicine came out with a recommendation that actually probably for men, it should be closer to 104 ounces of water per day, which should be like 13 cups. Uh, and for women, at least 72 ounces, which would be like nine cups. And then for children, it varies depending on their age and size. And so a simple rule of thumb, actually, that's even reasonable is to say, if you take your body weight in, in pounds and just cut it in half, Whatever that number is, can be the amount of uh, ounces of uh, water that you should drink in a day. So way more than probably most of us have been drinking. Well, that's right, because for most of us, you know, when we say eight, eight ounce glasses, you know, a lot of my patients will sometimes say, yeah, I get about four to six. That's not bad, right, doc? And in reality, it might be. Huh. You know, it might be bad for them. Yeah. So most of us have safe tap water. Um, is that okay to drink or should we be drinking the bottled water? So the deal is, I mean, in general terms, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, my tap water is dirty. I'm going to drink bottled water. First of all, it's important to get your tap water, especially if you have well water and things like that. You should get it checked regularly. Uh, but, you know, generally bottled water is no cleaner or safer um, or healthier than tap water. And uh, the federal government probably has more rigorous and frequent safety testing that's required for municipal water uh, than we might think. So honestly, tap water is just as good. In fact, bottled water, uh, the problem with that is that one, the expense. So where tap water might cost two cents per gallon, bottled water can actually cost up to 64 cents per gallon or nearly 32 times as much. And then you think about the plastic bottles uh, and the environmental impact that that has. Uh, you know, I, I think I was reading some statistic that said it takes more than 17 million barrels of oil uh, to produce enough plastic water bottles to meet America's annual demand for bottled water. So then the fact that we can't, don't do a great job of getting rid of the plastic and that it doesn't really decompose as well 
uh, and recycling policies aren't the strongest even now, uh, you know, makes it more reasonable for people to recognize that generally speaking, most of our tap water, especially here in the United States, uh, is good and local municipalities on their websites have a lot of information. So if you have any doubts, you can always call your local municipality to find out uh, or, you know, get the reusable, uh, you know, BPA free uh, water bottles that then you can refill from your tap and then and enjoy the water. Now, a lot of the bottled waters that I see on the store shelves, they're, they've got flavors in them or they're carbonated. Does that take away from the benefit of, of drinking water if you choose something like that? So water itself is fine. When you think about the flavorings, part of the issue is, one, where is the flavoring coming from and what is the flavoring? So when we read things like you know natural flavors, uh, that's a very broad term that doesn't really specifically let us know what led to that natural flavor. Was it a, a chemical you know, that was uh, utilized or built in a lab, uh, put together to create a flavor, or is it actually natural from the fruit itself, etc.? So uh, oftentimes the issue is, is not the water itself, but it's the stuff that goes in. So sometimes it's sugars and acids and those can have a negative impact even when it comes to oral health, your teeth, the enamel, gum health, and inflammation. Uh, and over time, that can create a problem. When you think about carbonated waters, you know, there's a difference between kind of just, you know, you think about seltzer and you think about club soda. And club soda has sodium in there, which for some people may not be optimal, whereas seltzer is primarily aerated water. And the way they aerate it is using carbon dioxide. Uh, then you think about other carbonated, you know, drinks where now there's flavoring in there. And some of that in tonic water has uh, sugar in there as well. So for people that have irritable bowel syndrome and things like that, sometimes the carbonated beverages can actually trigger, you know, increased bloating and gas for some people. And that could trigger their irritable bowel to get set off as well. Uh, so people have to be careful about that as well. Does the temperature of the water matter? Does it, if, if we like to drink it ice cold versus room temperature, is there a difference? So there is actually, this is a, it's a great question. There's some very interesting information because when people want to lose weight, um, you know, they talk about drinking cold water because uh, what happens is then the body has to use up more energy to kind of bring it closer to, you know, the body temperature. And so, you know, some studies would say that, you know, people who drink cold water, it might even boost their metabolism uh, and they may burn up to even as much as 70 calories in a day. Uh, whereas people that drink warm water for digestion, warm water is thought to be better. Uh, and in, you know, the world of things like Chinese medicine and in Ayurvedic medicine, they even talk about helping, you know, having people drink a glass of warm water or a few glasses of warm water first thing in the morning uh, to actually help with digestion. Um, others think that you know drinking warm water can actually help with certain types of pain, such as menstrual cramps, headaches, even some joint aches and pains for some people. So cold water feels better, especially when we're exercising, uh, and even in terms of helping a little bit with metabolism, whereas warm water may actually be better for digestion. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati, the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, about healthy beverage choices. Now, many of us have a habit of drinking coffee or tea. Is that good or bad? So uh, coffee and tea, you know, uh, and again, depending on who you talk to, even which physician you speak with uh, or health expert and what their own personal habits are, <laughs> may have their own bias, and I'm smiling when I say this, uh, because I enjoy making my own chai tea in the morning uh, as kind of my self-care. Um, so coffee and tea, the main issue with them a lot of times is uh, the caffeine content and then the way in which they're prepared, uh, so the acidity uh, and the impact that that can have on people in terms of not only digestion, but if they have a history of things like reflux disease and that sort of thing. So teas historically have been used for, you know, healing in multiple cultures around the world. 
Uh, and there are different, you know, ways to, there's the art of tea making, uh, depending on whether you're making, you know, chai tea, as I mentioned, you know, uh, that's, you know, used in India, depending on what you put in there between ginger and cardamom, cinnamon, you know, uh, black pepper, etc. Uh, and then there's also tea that's uh, used in the Far East for medicinal purposes and healing. And oftentimes those teas don't have any kind of milk in them. So that's a different kind of tea. Uh, then you have things like chamomile tea, which have been shown to be soothing and can even help benefit with sleep and things like that. Uh, and tea generally tends to have less caffeine than coffee. But also if you leave tea on the stove and keep it steeping or brewing longer, it becomes more and more acidic. And so that's something to be careful of. Same thing with coffee is, you know, coffee, we know that two cups of caffeinated coffee in a 24-hour period can raise your blood pressure by 5 to 10 points, which basically is about a 25 to 5% increased risk uh, for a heart attack or stroke. Um, so, you know, again, too much caffeinated coffee uh, can put people at risk, especially if they have a risk of heart disease, blood pressure, etc. At the same time, Caffeine as a stimulant can help us with alertness, uh, paying attention, that sort of thing. And so a little bit may go a long way, but a lot may cause more harm than good. What do you say to your patients who like to get their caffeine from soda? So what I tell them is that there's uh, interesting data. There's one study that showed that women who had one sugared soda a day versus women who had one sugared soda a month the women who had one sugared soda a day had nearly a 63% increased risk of rheumatoid arthritis showing up. Now, when you think about that, and these, this wasn't like 20 uh, people that they looked at. This was, you know, looking at thousands of women. And so while it was not a randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled trial, and it was more of a, an analysis over time, uh, what that does show is that the impact is inside the cell, inside the nucleus, at the DNA. And women who had two to three sugared sodas a day had nearly a 20 to 30% increased risk of cardiovascular disease in another study. So what we know is with soda, uh, the problem is all of the ingredients in there, really the high sugar content and the impact that that has on things like inflammation, on impact on oral health and on the teeth and decay, uh, potential for uh, you know, bacterial overgrowth, which leads to uh, gingivitis, leads to cavities, et cetera, in the, in the mouth. It can also have an impact on, you know, gut conditions like irritable bowel syndrome or inflammation in the bowel. Uh, and also, these are calories that are not the healthiest calories. And so when you get a sugar load in, the body releases insulin. Insulin tells the brain, hey, I'm going to bring some sugar in. I need to store it somewhere. And usually that storage is fat cells. So again, uh, you know, it's important for people to realize that drinking ice water uh, can have just as much of a stimulant effect as can drinking, you know, uh, soda or caffeine. And so being healthier in the long term uh, is going to help them as well. Well, what about energy drinks that are, these seem to be very popular with people that are trying to, you know, stay awake. Um, they, they've got more, maybe more sugar than soda has and maybe more caffeine. Are they dangerous choices? So, yeah, with energy drinks, you know, we often see this where people, because the containers are usually smaller, uh, instinct is for, well, I'll just have two or, you know, I'll have one, you know, the five hour energy means every five hour I can have this, but the amount of caffeine in there is really at a high, high quantity. And that can lead to things like rhythm disturbances in the heart, uh, increased blood pressure, anxiety, um, you know, and palpitations where you can feel your heart beating, that type of stuff. So uh, I definitely recommend against those drinks uh, for people, especially if they're trying to use that as self-therapy to try to boost their energy. I think, you know, trying to get outside for a walk, getting up out of the chair, getting some fresh air, drinking ice water, making a little snack where you cut up some fruit, uh, or even cut up some cucumbers and carrots, squeeze some lime on it, a little pinch of salt and pepper, and suddenly that flavor will perk you up as well. Uh, there are many healthy ways to boost your energy, uh, and I don't think that the energy drinks provide any health value for sure, 
and at the same time, maybe more of a detriment, uh, especially because what people don't realize is, you know, the classic caffeine high and then the caffeine low, sugar high and sugar low. And so you might get a boost, but then within a few hours, you get a real low uh, drained feeling. And now you want more of that stuff. And so that leads to kind of, it's, it's almost like a gateway behavior in terms of the addiction and the urge and the need for wanting more. The, uh, the sports drinks that are out there, that, like Gatorades and Power Aids, those are different than the energy drinks. Those are supposedly you know, strong electrolyte uh, replenishers. Are those something that are that are recommended if you've got um, you know a, an intense workout that sort of thing? Do those help? So electrolytes are necessary, especially when people work out for more than an hour. So if you're working out for under an hour. Usually water is fine for most people, you know, uh, obviously if you have a highly intense, high intensity workout, it's a different story, but for a majority of us working out less than an hour, water is good enough. When you work out for more than an hour, you might lose a lot more sodium in your sweat and that sort of thing. And if the muscles get more fatigued, you can get cramping if the potassium and magnesium are lower. So, you know, these energy drinks and this whole industry has ballooned. The problem is that with these energy drinks, there's a lot of uh, sugar in many of them. And also the coloring that's used, especially the blue and the yellow coloring, uh, can have a detrimental effect uh, on patients as well uh, in terms of their gut uh, and is also in triggering inflammation. Uh, so what we tell them is try to drink more natural electrolyte-based solutions. So uh, things like you know making homemade lemonade a recipe I like is homemade limeade with ginger, uh, where you know you can use lime, you can put a little bit of salt in there, uh, you can actually put some fresh peeled grated ginger, uh, and then use natural sweetener, whether it be you know local honey or brown sugar or agave or even a little bit of maple syrup, and then water and crushed ice. And lime is a great source of magnesium and potassium, better source of vitamin C compared to even oranges for size. Ginger is an anti-inflammatory. When you sweat, you need the sodium, so the salt helps with that. Uh, and then, you know, you got the water right in there. And that's a much more flavorful and much healthier way to try to get your electrolytes than to get something in a plastic bottle that might have been sitting on a shelf for a year or longer. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be right back after this short break with more about selecting the best beverages with Dr. Koshal Nanavati. Welcome back to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati about how to choose what's best to drink. Now, one thing we haven't talked about is fruit juice. And I know I've heard people say that it's better to eat a whole fruit, but what's so wrong with fruit juice? Why, why, uh, why, are, why is that not recommended necessarily? I mean, I think the main thing with fruit juice is the fact that, you know, if you think about orange juice, one glass of orange juice probably requires about, uh, you know, two to three oranges, right, squeezed in there, which means you got two to three oranges worth of acid, you got two to three oranges worth of sugar in that glass. Whereas if you eat one orange and drink that glass of water, you've got, you know, nearly a third of the sugar and the citric acid. And so for people in terms of calories, when they're concerned about that, when people have you know issues with diabetes, even with uh, you know conditions such as cancer, et cetera, especially certain types, now we have to be careful about the sugar load the juices have. So I tell people if you're gonna have juice and you like to have juice, try to have it earlier in the day where you can use up the sugar and those calories, but you don't want to have it at nighttime. And also it's important, you know, once you drink juice or have sugar sweetened beverages or that type of stuff. Uh, to rinse your mouth, to wash your mouth so that you don't, um, you know, create an environment that is promoting bacterial growth in the mouth as well. Let me ask you, if you um, eat fruit like an orange, does that count towards your water for the day? Does that fluid count? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and so when you think about the foods that are, you know, water rich, uh, you can think about, you know, watermelon, first of all, is a great one, but cucumbers, 
uh, some of your leafy greens, spinach, that sort of thing, they're a really great source uh, of uh, high water content. And so, you know, it's not just about how many glasses of water you drink. The fluid content of the foods you have um, actually makes a big difference as well. So it's not like you have to be flavorless. Uh, and if you think about taking water and naturally flavoring it, you know, with either cucumber or mint, um, or some people uh, will actually take berries and put them in an ice tray with some water and freeze them, and then just put them in their glass of water. And as they melt, you get the flavor. Uh, you can take a lemon, a lime, and an orange in a pitcher of water and, you know, cut it in half and squeeze each one in there. And then with the other halves, just cut them into slices and put them in the pitcher. And over time, you'll start to get the flavor uh, of that, you know, infusing into the water. And that can be great. Now, another popular beverage is the smoothie. What advice do you have about making or selecting a smoothie that is actually good for you? So generally with smoothies, you know, a lot of people will be fruit heavy and greens poor, right? So they'll put a lot more fruit in a little bit of greens. Uh, if you're making a smoothie, ideally what you want to do is, you know, have a good volume of greens, uh, whether it be spinach or kale or whatever you prefer, uh, along with, you know, one or two uh, fruit at the most. And then you can you put, either put some water in there. Some people like to put milk or almond milk or yogurt in there, uh, and that's fine too. Um, uh, if you like to make it with water, you can actually, a simple recipe would be if you took baby spinach, one or two cups, uh, took a, an orange, took an apple, uh, and then actually squeeze half a lime in there uh, and maybe a quarter inch of ginger uh, and then some water. Uh, and that can make for a great healthy smoothie. Uh, other people like to make things like, you know, use almond milk with banana uh, and some greens in there. Uh, so you can get very creative, but the key is not to overload the sugar sources. Uh, and try to get more of the greens in there as possible. Well, that reminds me that I want to ask you about milk. Uh, there's so many milks um, that are options today, but let's just start with regular cow's milk. Is this something that only children need, or should adults be drinking cow's milk as well? So I'm smiling because you're taking me into a very, you know, uh, politically charged, controversial um, topic. And in New York State, you know, the dairy industry in our state is, is huge. Uh, and milk has a lot of health benefits in terms of calcium and the protein it provides and vitamin D. Uh, so, you know, my thing with milk is if people tolerate it well and they like it, um, then they can drink it. They can continue to drink it. But many people, as they get older, um, actually get more and more lactose intolerant. And so if you find that you're you know, getting either bloating or gas or changing stools or having fatigue, a simple thing that you can do is just eliminate the dairy for one to four weeks and then bring it back in and see how differently you felt, right? Uh, so that's one thing that you can do. Um, in terms of necessity, um, realistically, what most of the literature says is actually after infancy, many of us don't really need to have milk specifically uh, but we do need the calcium and we do need the proteins and we do need the vitamin D and it becomes a great source for those things. Uh, cheese is another thing. Yogurt's another thing. And in the dairy family, probably I would say yogurt because of the probiotics uh, has, you know, that added benefit um, for the gut and the gut health as well. So maybe if we're not like natural milk drinkers, we just don't like it. We need to be mindful of finding a source for vitamin D and calcium and protein elsewhere. And healthy fats, right? That's the other thing that milk provides as well. So uh, that would be the thing. And as far as other types of milks, we think about almond milk and we think about soy milk and coconut milk. And, uh, you know, there's nothing specifically wrong with those. Um, and the key is, you know, too much of a good thing can be bad also, you know, in some cases. So, Again, if you're having, uh, you know, milk or dairy products in moderation, uh, they can be a part of the diet. Um, the Harvard Healthy Eating Plate actually uh, doesn't necessarily specifically put dairy into, uh, you know, their healthy eating plate as a primary component. And some of that has to do with the fact that most of the components that dairy provides, we can get from other food sources. 
so that's the main reason. And again, if we do drink milk, that goes toward our total of, of liquid intake for the day as well, right? That's correct. So milk um, and any non-caffeinated beverage that you have goes towards your overall fluid intake. Uh, with caffeinated beverages, because that can also uh, work as a bit of a diuretic or making you pee, uh, you can't count it as a full serving necessarily. Now, you said caffeinated beverages don't count. What about alcoholic beverages? So caffeinated beverages, I won't say don't count, but they count partly, right? Uh, so I don't want to make that clear. Alcohol, again, you know, specifically one, depending on what type of alcohol you have. So generally speaking, uh, alcohol does have liquid in it. Uh, but when it comes to the recommendations of the American Cancer Society, um, you know, the goal is if you don't drink, you don't need to start. And if you do drink, you want to try to limit your consumption. Uh, and uh, generally speaking, the Heart Association, even the Cancer Society, um, state that, you know, for men up to two drinks a day, if they do normally drink, would be the maximum. And for women, one drink would be the maximum. Uh, although we do have data uh, that shows that any consumption of alcohol increases your risk for cancer across the board. And so from that perspective, you know, if you're asking me, yeah, I'm not one to tell somebody, you know, yeah, you should go and drink alcohol because I don't really know that the, the positive, there are any positives that outweigh the negative consequences. Well, from time to time, we see a study that pops up saying that a daily glass of red wine, specifically red wine, is good for your heart. Um, is that not necessarily true? Well, so again, from the data, you know, it suggests that uh, there is some, uh, there's thought to be some benefit. Primarily, we think about resveratrol as being the thing. Uh, but we also know that alcohol can have a uh, dilation effect on the vessels, and, and that may also be a potential contributing factor in terms of impacting blood pressure, uh, opening up the vessels a little bit. In the long term, unfortunately, people that drink alcohol regularly, it can also cause something called dilated cardiomyopathy, uh, which can then lead to things like uh, heart failure over time. Uh, and so that's also something to be careful about. Um, and so that people have to put, you know, again, moderation is the key. Uh, you know, none of us uh, necessarily are going to do everything right all the time. But I think having good information allows people to make better informed choices. And so if, if somebody enjoys having a glass of wine once in a while, um, you know, the potential uh, harm is not as much as if somebody's having three, four glasses of wine a day. Gotcha. Well, let's return to the subject of water, um, because I think you've sort of convinced us all that that's really the best thing to, you know, load up on, drink, drink a lot of water. But that's a little bit easier said than done. Do, do you have any tips or tricks for making water a little more palatable or more appealing or easier to drink a big quantity of? So one of the simple things that people can do, and this is something that's, you know, kind of talked about in Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine, uh, is that in the morning when you first wake up, um, having, you know, a couple of glasses, anywhere from one to four glasses, eight ounce glasses of room temperature water can actually help not only your digestion, but then that helps you to start the day ahead. So uh, some people will squeeze a little bit of lemon or lime in their water. Uh, some people will overnight, you know, put cucumber and mint uh, in a jug of water and leave it, you know, on the on the kitchen counter. So when they come in the morning, you know, it's already flavored well. And so that, that can also be a way to do it. Um, and then generally speaking, when you're eating, uh, ideally, if you're going to drink water, you can have maybe a glass, you know, with your food uh, to help. But you don't want to over drink. Uh, fluids while you're eating because we also want to be able to digest the food without pushing it into the small intestines too quickly. So a lot of uh, traditions talk about drinking, you know, maybe an eight ounce glass of water with your meal, but then about a half hour later having another glass of water. Uh, I think natural flavoring with either a little bit of fruit, uh, mint, uh, you know, you can even uh, put in, uh, as they say, some berries and that sort of thing. Uh, is probably the easiest way to uh, make water fun uh, for somebody who doesn't enjoy drinking plain water all the time. 
Uh, and so that would work. Well, I've found this very uh, informative. This has been very helpful. I, I want to thank you. My guest has been Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate. He's an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, and he's the Medical Director of Integrative Therapy at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, does stress have you clenching and grinding? Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. At the height of the pandemic, dental offices scaled back and only cared for patients with urgent dental problems. As the numbers of the COVID infected have dropped, dental practices resumed taking care of more routine dental needs. I'm checking in with two assistant professors of surgery at Upstate who specialize in dental surgery, Dr. Jean DeFlorio and Dr. Patrick Smith. Welcome both of you to HealthLink on Air. Thank you, Amber. Thanks for having us. Now, a lot of people had to postpone dental care during the pandemic. Are you seeing things that would have been little problems six months ago that are now big problems? We are. Uh, now that we are back to routine care, we're seeing uh, more and more how important our preventative and uh, maintenance uh, therapies are. And one area is periodontal disease. Um, our patients who have periodontal disease are typically on a three to four month recall system at our office. So periodontal disease re refers to um, gum problems? Yes, so periodontal disease is actually the infection and inflammation of the gums and the bone that supports the teeth. So in our periodontal patients, what happens is this inflammation and this infection can cause pocketing around the teeth. And this pocket, these pockets will hold bacteria. Bacteria can cause inflammation that then will destroy the bone that supports the teeth. And this can ultimately lead to uh, tooth loss um, and tooth mobility. So uh, what about cavities? Are cavities something that... Um needs to be treated right away? Hey, Amber, I, then I'll address that. Um, certainly cavities are never good. Um, so certainly during the pandemic, you know, with the shutdown that we um, all endured, you know, we found that uh, upon people's return to the offices, cavities were deeper, larger, uh, more painful now for our, the majority of our patients who had to wait. So that has kind of created a whole nother subset of urgencies that uh, most offices have had to respond to. Uh, not unusual, you know, we've, we've spoken to our colleagues. Uh, it's quite common uh, issue that we're all running out of time. Uh, our offices have all found that we don't have enough hours in the week to actually address the numbers of patients who are looking to come back to address their common dental needs. You know, again, as Dr. DeFlorio alluded to with periodontal disease, you know, on the flip side of that, we have our patients with extensive uh, caries concerns. You know, they knew they had a cavity before uh, COVID hit and we all um, have been waiting. And now that we're back, it's, uh, it's, it's of utmost importance and urgency for a lot of these folks to get in. Because again, what was once a small cavity has grown. And in that time period, some patients have unfortunately had to consider other options for care. Uh, the cavity is now into the nerve of the tooth or the pulp of the tooth. So we have had to counsel them on what comes next. Uh, it may not be a simple filling anymore. It may be that they have to now choose between a root canal, um, you know, a fairly expensive proposition for most patients or uh, an extraction, unfortunately. So again, it becomes a choice at that point, which way can they go or do they choose to go? And, and again, a lot of these situations um, may have been avoidable um, had we not had, of course, this pandemic problem um, emerge. So do you know if there were more dental emergencies that wound up in the hospital emergency departments during the pandemic because offices were closed? I, absolutely. I, I, again, this has been uh, something near and dear to us here again at Upstate with our ED and our doctors here that report and treat patients at the ED. 
we are uh, very intimately involved with the number of dental cases that have presented. You know, any anybody that comes to the emergency room in Upstate, for example, you know, we are notified of their presence. We are aware of what the situation is. Is it pain? Is it swelling? Is it trauma? Uh, so certainly, uh, we have seen a notable increase over the past, you know, five six months of additional patient care needs arriving there. Um, this has included, yes, caries, people coming in with abscesses, uh, swellings, infections. Um, one thing becomes another, and unfortunately, unless they've been able to get care at their private office, um, sometimes that requires, you know, unfortunately, a trip to the emergency room for additional care needs. And sometimes that's the only place you can really uh, obtain this type of service or treatment. It sounds like this underscores the need for preventive care, really, ongoing preventive care. Absolutely. It, it's a delicate balance for a lot of uh, patients in that this interruption has created just enough of a delay uh, that it has now kind of blossomed, unfortunately, into a whole nother subset of issues. And again, the industry is trying to keep up. Uh, you know, there are a lot of patients who are still waiting for uh, the ability to just schedule their normal visits. Uh, there's been such a backlog. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Patrick Smith and Dr. Jean DeFlorio, who are both assistant professors specializing in dental surgery at Upstate. Now, I've heard that some dentists are seeing a rash of people with fractured teeth from grinding, possibly as a response to the stress that we are feeling. Have you seen that in Syracuse? Yes, we have. Um, we have seen an uptick in patients who are just uh, undergoing stress, period. Uh, and with that comes a number of different side effects. So fractured teeth, grinding, clenching, um, pain in the jaws, uh, all of those uh, are um, things that we have seen because patients are uh, in a lot of stress, these days, having a lot of stress these days. So is like grinding and clenching, is that something that we can control or is that our body sort of just dealing with the stress that we don't know how to control? I mean, are there things we can do to stop this? Sure. sure. So I guess it depends on when you are noticing that these this is happening. So uh, for something like nocturnal bruxism, which is clenching or grinding at night, um, we're less aware of what is happening to us when we sleep. So for nocturnal bruxism, we have to ask the patient um, what's going on. Uh, are they, uh, we have to consider airway issues. We have to consider sleep apnea. We have to look at, is this uh, acid reflux or GERD? Um, or is this stress? Uh, these are things that the patient cannot control themselves while they're sleeping. So we have to really dig deep and figure out what uh, the underlying issue is. For daytime um, bruxing, um, we usually use a cognitive therapy approach where we're asking our patients to uh, maybe set a timer every hour and see what they're doing uh, and how they're holding their bodies. Um, are they clenching? Are they grinding? Are they holding their mouth in a certain position? Um, if they see, uh, recognize that they're doing that, we have um, some exercises. Uh, we um, ask them to relax their shoulders, to unclench their jaws, to maybe give a little massage, but it's basically uh, allowing them to recognize it so that they can then break the habit. Um, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, so our um, treatment of uh, these symptoms uh, will depend on what is causing the, the issue. So if a person is clenching or grinding and they do this so much that they actually fracture their teeth, will it be obvious to them that their their teeth have fractured? Will they see something on the tooth or will they feel something? Uh, it depends. Uh, some people will, uh, you know, go out to lunch and, and eat their lunch and then they'll realize, oh, I'm missing a piece of my tooth and not even realize that something's happened to them. Or other people will notice, oh, I bit into something and I'm in pain. So, um, again, it's, it's different with each individual. Well, either way, is a fractured tooth, is that generally an emergency? It can be. Um, it can be something as simple as a chip in the tooth, or it can be something that in uh, a fracture that involves the pulp, as Dr. Smith was describing before, the pulp or the nerve of the tooth. It also um, 
can uh, actually split the tooth to the point where the tooth cannot be saved and needs to be extracted or removed. Um, some people can uh, have, may need a root canal or a crown uh, placed on their tooth. Other people, other um, patients may need just a simple filling in their tooth. Well, let's talk about the measures uh, that dental offices are following to keep patients safe. Um, Dr. Smith, what are some of the infection control guidelines that practices have been following that sort of are the, in place to prevent the spread of a virus such as coronavirus? Sure, that's that's a great question. Uh, it's on a lot of patients' minds. You know, uh, when we first opened uh, the first few weeks, um, absolutely, patients were asking, you know, what are you doing to make sure I'm safe when you come to the office? Is it safe to come back to the office? Uh, so certainly, I think um, a lot of uh, a lot of folks are aware today, especially you know baseline monitoring. So um, doing basic health questions when patients um, come to the office, we ask them: Are you have you been near someone who's been exposed to uh, COVID potentially? Have you had a COVID test? Um, temperature checks. Um, all patients coming into an office typically have a temperature check. Uh, air quality issues, HEPA filtration, that is a big one for all offices. Uh, so again, all dental offices in some, in some manner have responded to try to up their requirements for baseline disinfection, um, all hard surfaces. You know, we, we of course are concerned and want to make sure our patients feel comfortable coming back, um, understanding that we are under some scrutiny. Um, for what we are doing. And, you know, we as an industry uh, in dentistry have always been uh, concerned about disinfection, sterilization. It's part and parcel for who we are and what we do. So this was kind of an, uh, an interesting um, approach in that, it, you know, we have always been known for being um, on top of sterilization and disinfection. And again, CDC, uh, ADA, OSHA guidelines just help I think us feel comfortable that we're approaching this in the right way with our patients. And uh, I think they understand when they come in what's happening, why we're doing it, why we're asking the questions we are. And I, I, th I think it, it's a level playing field for everybody at that point that um, they feel that uh, they're, they're receiving the best care in a safe environment. Now, don't many dental procedures actually put the dental staff at risk of exposure? So I, I wonder if there's things that have been added to keep the dental staff safe. Well, that's plausible. That's possible. I understand what you're asking. Um, you know, in, in dentistry, we do create a lot of aerosols. Um, everyone understands that we have equipment that creates uh, sprays. Um, and again, that was one of the concerns initially with this disease was uh, we, how do we control it um, in our own offices? So there are more mechanical um, safeguards or engineering protocols that have been put into place to address that. So again, increased suction um, at the point of source, you know, we're working on a patient. Some offices have increased the uh, abilities to withdraw those aerosols. Um, room uh, filtration, again, um, where applicable, uh, lots of offices have added uh, room filters to their operatories to address that, or they've, you know, increased the filtration of their own, you know, central units within the building itself. So everyone's had to have, has had to adapt depending on what they have. As we all know, there's a variety of offices out there in the world. We have homes that are offices. We have leased building spaces that are offices. Uh, we have hospitals like ours where we have uh, our own filtration systems. So everyone's kind of had to adapt. Well, we don't know how much longer this pandemic is going to last, but just in case we're confined to our homes a while longer, can you talk to me about the things that we can do individually to maintain dental health? I'm, I'm wondering, are there certain foods maybe that we should avoid because we don't want to invite some sort of a dental problem? I think it's the important thing is to uh, a routine schedule, uh, making sure that you're continuing to brush, floss, rinse, Use your water pick if you have one. Um, also watching um, acid over time. So when you have um, certain uh, foods, you wanna make sure that you're eating them or consuming them um, at the right time of day. So for example, if you like to drink soda, um, we would really encourage you to um, 
drink uh, your soda at a meal versus sipping on the soda all day long. When you sip on a beverage, uh, anything basically other than water, you're lowering the, you're increasing the acidity in your mouth. And what that can do is that can break down your teeth faster. So um, we like to have you have your foods that are high in sugars and acidity uh, during a meal so that after that meal, your saliva can then buffer your mouth and um, decrease the amount of acid. Uh, and then if you need to sip on something all day long, water is always great. Um, I think what happens is when everything shut down or people were working longer hours, we uh, sort of fell off our routines. So um, it's important to maintain your routine and, and um, really get in there and brush and floss and, and eat good foods. And as you're describing the higher acidity, possibly, and I'm thinking if that mixes with, you know, someone who's clinching, that's just going to make it worse, right? Sure, sure. You know, as you keep adding these risk factors um, in there, um, you're going to see uh, faster destruction of the teeth in this, this support system of the mouth. Well, let's go over the warning signs that someone should not ignore. Um, if you know, dental wise, are there things that should prompt someone to contact their dentist uh, pretty immediately, Dr. Smith? So I, I think in that regard, you know, there's multiple things that happen to people that do bring them into the office. Uh, so I think most, most notably, uh, most patients react to pain. So again, not to be ignored, your body's trying to remind you or tell you, hey, pay attention, I don't feel good. So again, pain can be from a cavity, as we talked about, Pain can be from an abscess or an emerging swelling. And again, those are typically due to localized infections with the teeth. Um, again, I think anybody who's paid any attention to the toothpaste commercials out there will talk about, you know, the, the discussion on um, blood. You know, so if you're brushing your teeth and you have a little bit of blood when you spit out or you rinse, again, it's your body trying to remind you, hey, I'm not really happy. Uh, there's something going on. So. Again, if you are brushing and you or flossing and you routinely um, spit out blood, again, it's a warning sign to say, hey, check me out. Um, and that's a good indicator that you probably should come in for a checkup, um, see what's going on. That can be due to a couple of things, but oftentimes, as Dr. DeFlorio was reviewing earlier, periodontal disease is a, is a concern. Um, a large portion of the population does have it. It's, it's left unchecked, untreated, it will result in tooth loss. That is what happens uh, when it's not treated properly. So again, it's an opportunity for intervention. You know, we, we want our patients to keep their teeth. That's the idea. So uh, again, that's that's an easy one. I hate to say that's easy, but when you see red, um, stop. Um, it's time to make a phone call. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you both. Thank you to Dr. Patrick Smith and Dr. Jean DeFlorio, who are both assistant professors specializing in dental surgery at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now... Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Two of our poets gave us an intimate glimpse into the emotions we feel when we begin to parent our parents and ready ourselves for life without them. Courtney Davis is up first with Washing Mother's Hair. Davis, a nurse practitioner, is the author of three poetry collections. Washing Mother's Hair, one. Houses disappeared in snow, and pine trees tossed down sparrows frozen to their bones. We buried them in shoebox graves. Birds' ghosts, like my prayers, puffed into air. At night, we'd watch as cars slid sideways down our icy road. Dead Man's Hill, my mother said. Then she'd comb my hair, her thin black comb following her hand, until my hair sparked stars that melted everywhere. Two. November's winds increase, and sparrows reappear as black-winged geese. Yesterday, we washed my mother's hair. Hold her head above the pan, I told him, and my father held her baby skull. Warm water from the pitcher, thin gray hair, 
Tonight, the first fog of snow into which geese and memories disappear, and my mother, my star, half seen, then vanishing. Next is Elaine Frabel, a poet, naturalist, and environmentalist educator from Maryland. Here is her poignant memory of her father in a poem called Safety. Black safety shoes, I stood on the steel toes when we danced. Now rest empty in dad's closet, missing his feet, the making of that steady plodding step. Left on the bumper of my car, they rode with me to work unscathed, like glorious leather hood ornaments, bearing thick industrial soles. Maybe they sang in the wind, enduring potholes and grime, those gravity shoes that held him to earth, the champion of hurdles in the old soft shoe, the teaberry shuffle down the aisle at my wedding. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, virtual visits with emergency physicians. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Music